He has won the victory. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Thank you so much, Luke, and the rest of the team leading us in worship through song this morning. What a blessing to sing Psalm 34, to live out Psalm 34. Magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. What a joy. Thank you so much. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it and turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Have you ever had that conversation? You know the one I'm talking about? Something's happened, and you know you need to address it. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's something in your household with your family members. Maybe it's a friend. I guarantee you it would never happen here at this church, right? No one ever, friends, friends, that, friends at this church, totally fine. We never have to have that conversation. But you're thinking about what you have to say. You're thinking about how you're going to have to address an issue, how you're going to have to address a problem, how you're going to have to bring something up. You think through the ways the conversation could go as you say certain things, and, and then panic starts to set in. Fear, anxiety. You just really don't even want to have to have the conversation. And as you lie awake at night, fear just engulfing you, knowing that you're going to see that person the next day and have that conversation. What do you do? What do you do when you're terrified in those moments? How do you process what's happening? When you're stuck in a moment of fear-inducing pressure, how do you respond? And better yet, why do you respond the way that you do? This morning in Daniel chapter 4, we will see Daniel stuck in a panicked moment a fear-inducing moment before King Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to get the privilege of seeing how he responds and why he responds the way that he responds. And from him this morning, we will learn four very important lessons about how we, like him, when we find ourselves in these moments, how we can respond the way that Daniel responded. So let's read our text this morning, Daniel chapter 4, verses 19 through 27. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts were alarming him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field inhabited, and in whose branches the birds of the sky dwelt, it is you, O king, Because you have become great and grown strong, and your greatness has become even greater and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. But in that, the king saw a watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump 
with its roots in the earth, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the resolution of the Most High, which has reached my Lord the king. You will be driven away from mankind, and your place of habitation will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. And in that they, leave, they said to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will endure for you after you know that it is heaven that rules with power. Therefore, O king, may my advice seem good to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may, there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we thank you so much for the amazing privilege that we have every Lord's Day to open your word. It is not something that we want to take lightly or for granted this morning. And we gather and we see a passage that sits so perfectly in two very familiar passages for many of us, seeing King Nebuchadnezzar's dream and then seeing what's going to happen to him later. Father, I... I pray that we wouldn't move on too quickly from what we are going to experience today. That we would meditate on Daniel's amazing resolve in these moments to live as a follower of Yahweh before a pagan king and even before the cross to be able to show him the mercy that is evident in the gospel. Father, we want to be taught, instructed. We want our affections to grow. We want to see. But we need your help to do that. So as we pray every Lord's Day, Holy Spirit, please open our eyes that we would behold wondrous things from your law so that while seeing, we would actually see and not be like the Pharisees who, while seeing, they didn't see. Bless our time. Guide our time. Teach us. And make us more like our Savior, who exemplified all of these realities in perfection. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Daniel chapter 4, you remember from last week, we are fast-forwarding about 30 years from chapter 3. So chapter 3, fiery furnace, the end of that chapter, we fast-forward in chapter 4, about 30 years. So Daniel is now about 50 years old by this time. And he's standing before King Nebuchadnezzar. He had just had a dream. King Nebuchadnezzar had just had a dream about this magnificent tree that gets chopped down, that has this band of iron around it, and it's drenched with the dew from heaven. And the king is asking, Daniel, what does that mean? 
Remember, he had asked all the magicians, what does it mean? And all of the magicians said, we don't know. I, I do think they actually knew what it meant. I don't think that they wanted to say what it meant. Because it's clear that whoever this person is, this tree is getting chopped down and being destroyed. How would you feel in that moment if the king stood before you and said, I have a dream, you need to tell me what it means, and you know the interpretation of that dream is you're going to be destroyed? I I don't want to have to say those words. I don't want to have to say that reality. How would you feel? Well, I'll tell you how Daniel felt. The text tells us in verse 19, Daniel was, two words, appalled and alarmed. He was appalled. The Aramaic literally says stupefied for an hour. Now some translations will actually say he was appalled for one hour, that he just sat there struggling with what to do for one hour. I don't think it has to be one literal hour, but he's appalled. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And then the second word is alarmed. He's alarmed. That's the exact same word that was used about Nebuchadnezzar in verse 5 over the dream, alarmed by the contents of the dream. He's alarmed. A follower of God, a follower of Yahweh, is feeling the exact same emotions that a pagan Gentile king is feeling. And this leads us to lesson number one this morning from Daniel's life. Lesson number one. We need to realize that life is filled with moments of fear. Life is filled with moments of fear. I want to stop on this point because I think it's so encouraging. Think of Daniel. Think of Daniel. This is our brother in the faith who's gone before us. Daniel has experienced chapter 1, seeing the providence of God in asking the king, can can we not eat the dietary restrictions and the, the laws that you have for your people? Can we do our own laws? live out our own dietary restrictions? And you remember the king says, yes, they get uh, stronger and bigger than all the other people in Babylon. God's providence is just amazing. Chapter 2, when a very real threat of execution is hanging over Daniel and his friends, God, please give us the dream. They go, they pray. God gives them not only what the dream was. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar says, I had a dream. Tell me what I dreamt and tell me the interpretation. It was that statue. Nobody knew what it was. And God gives both the dream and the interpretation. Daniel lived through chapter 3. His three friends going into the fiery furnace. His three friends coming back telling him the story. Daniel's lived through all of these experiences that if you and I were to live through, maybe even as we've been going through this study in the book of Daniel, maybe you think, man, if only I just could go through something like that, I would never struggle with my faith ever again. Daniel's here to wake us up and remind us, no, you're always going to struggle. Fear is a reality for everyone. I think we tend to believe that if we would be strong Christians, that somehow we're never going to experience this reality of fear. We will. Somehow, I think we've bought into a lie that Christians are impervious to fear. It's just not going to happen. But it does. After living through all of chapter 1, 2, and 3, and then 30 more years after that, Daniel is terrified. We are too. We can be too. Like Daniel, in moments of pressure, we can find ourselves shuddering under the weight of that moment in fear. Why is Daniel so afraid? He's completely gripped by terror. He's genuinely shaken. Why? I believe he's thinking through the implications of this dream. 
He's thinking through the implications. Let me give you a couple reasons why I believe Daniel is afraid. And I, I love how the, the text actually says it. In verse 19, his thoughts were alarming him. So thoughts. It wasn't just one issue that was alarming him. It was this dream causing multiple issues alarming him. Number one, if he tells King Nebuchadnezzar the meaning and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like it and what king is going to like the interpretation of this dream... What could Nebuchadnezzar do to me? We've had a lot of grace from King Nebuchadnezzar. We've had a lot of strange moments. We've had a lot of kindness from God being given to us through this insane man. But maybe this is the last straw. Maybe his kindness has run out. It's almost as if, as Daniel stands before King Nebuchadnezzar, and King Nebuchadnezzar says, tell me the contents of the dream... It's almost as if Daniel says, sure, but before I do, can you tell me where is the nearest fiery furnace? I just need to know. No, no reason. Just tell me. And how hot is it currently before I tell you this? Daniel knows what happens when Nebuchadnezzar gets mad. And he knows that Nebuchadnezzar is not going to like this. That's why the magicians didn't tell Nebuchadnezzar. A second reason, so not only for Daniel's own benefit, I don't want my head to get chopped off. Secondly, if something happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, which this dream tells is going to happen, right? This dream says Nebuchadnezzar is going to be destroyed. He's going to be chopped down. A second reason I think Daniel's alarmed is there's now no guarantee of what's going to happen to his people, Israel, who are residing in Babylon. Who's going to show up after Nebuchadnezzar? Is it going to be a king that we like? We've finally gotten to know Nebuchadnezzar. We know how to operate around him. We know how he operates with us. And now he's leaving and we have to have a whole new king, probably a whole new country. Be encouraged. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. The first lesson that we learn from Daniel is that life has many moments in it that are filled with fear. It's not about if you will find yourself in a moment of pressure, fear, anxiety. It's about how you respond when you are. That's the question. And fear tends to be the greatest enemy of a faithful witness. But for Daniel, his fear will not keep him from doing what is right. He will speak up and he will share the truth. But at the same time, his fear also won't be an excuse for lashing out in anger and rage. And that leads us to our second lesson not only, number one, are we finding ourselves in moments of fear all the time, but number two, when we are in those moments, especially with our enemies, we must respond with compassion toward our enemies. We must respond with compassion toward our enemies. This is in verse 19 as well. As Daniel is struggling with alarm, the king answers and says, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. He can see it. There's a visible shakenness to Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar says, don't worry. Don't let it alarm you. Please just tell me. And then Daniel says something astounding. He says, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. This is really a third reason for why Daniel's probably alarmed. Number one, he doesn't want to die. Number two, he's scared for what's going to happen to his people. But number three, he loves King Nebuchadnezzar. He has a soft heart for this man who was his enemy. And he knows that this dream says, this man's going down. And he doesn't want that to be true. He doesn't want that for him. 
Daniel wasn't one of those followers of God who seemed to delight in the idea of the ungodly finally get what, getting what they have coming to them. His heart was soft toward the king. Just like Jesus. You remember Jesus in the book of Matthew during the Passion Week looking over Jerusalem and weeping. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to be handed over by his own people to the Gentile powers. He's about to be murdered on a cross and he's weeping on the Mount of Olives looking over Jerusalem saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you together under my wings like a, a hen does with her baby chicks. I wanted to gather you together. But you are unwilling. Even now, I want to gather you, but you're not willing. He weeps over Jerusalem. He doesn't say, I know what's going to happen to you. I know 70 AD is coming. I know you're going to be destroyed. Good riddance. This is Daniel. Weeping over the reality of what this dream means for the king that he has come to love. His enemy that now he's showing great compassion for. Just think of Daniel in this situation. Taken from his home almost killed in a rage by this king, had his three friends almost killed in a rage by this king. This man's insane. And yet Daniel says, I wish that this dream wasn't for you. I wish this dream wasn't for you. Instead of being angry, vindictive, or rejoicing in the judgment of this prophecy, Daniel grieves. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, King Nebuchadnezzar, but I want you to know that I wish it wasn't for you. I wish you weren't going to have to go through this. What a gracious answer from Daniel. Judgment's coming, but Daniel doesn't exult in that. Rather, he has compassion for the one facing that judgment. What about you? When you look around in the world and you see the enemies of God being judged, is your heart responding to that with a simple, yes, they finally got what is coming to them and that you glory in that reality? Or is there a part of your heart that says, while weeping, God, please save my enemies. Please save my enemies. Our job is to be faithful to share the message that God has given, which Daniel's going to do. But before he does, he reminds us this morning that our job is to share it in love. Before he launches into the meaning of the dream, he says, I want you to know, Nebuchadnezzar, I love you, I care about you, and I wish that this wasn't happening. It's so reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 13. You can speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but if you don't have love, it doesn't profit anyone anything. So many people, uh, especially in our circles, tend to say, I'm a truth guy, I just tell it like it is. And me telling you the truth, that is me loving you. I don't need to worry about the tone. I don't need to worry about how it comes across. Me telling you the truth, just the sheer fact that I'm communicating the truth, that's loving. I would say take a closer look at Daniel. There's a way to speak the truth without love, and there's a way to speak the truth in love. And the Bible says if you speak the truth without love, it doesn't profit anyone anything. So Daniel, with kindness and grace and compassion in his heart, says, before I tell you the truth, I want you to know my heart grieves over this. That leads to our third lesson. Thirdly, Daniel teaches us here that we must respectfully speak God's truth. We must respectfully speak God's truth. This is verses 20 through 26. 
So first we've seen that we must realize we're going to be filled with life, uh, fearful moments in life. We're going to be filled with that. We need to know that. That shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Secondly, we must understand that as we go to speak the, the truth of God, we must go to our enemies with love in our hearts, compassion in our hearts. Thirdly, we must respectfully speak God's truth. A love for somebody will not keep us from sharing that truth. We must speak it with boldness, with clarity, with compassion. And so he says, the contents of the dream, which we saw last week, so we don't have to go through it in detail. The summary of it is that you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the tree. You're great. The tree's going to get chopped down. You are going to live like an animal outdoors. And all of this is going to happen to you to teach you a valuable lesson. And when you come to your senses, your kingdom will be restored. This is the beauty of what we see in Daniel. The character of a true servant of God is this. A love-driven sadness that cringes to speak the hard words of God, yet a God-honoring obedience that speaks it anyway. That's what we need to have as a church. We respectfully speak the word of God. And so Daniel says, the interpretation of the dream, the contents of the dream, and he speaks and he tells that this is from God. It's very interesting if you drop down to verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the resolution of the Most High, which has reached my Lord the king. If God did not make this known, if it hadn't been given to you, if it hadn't reached you, you wouldn't know. What a grace of God that we have been given the word of God. God in his kindness has not remained silent. He has given us his word. He has given us prophecy. He has given us truth. He has not remained silent. And so Daniel, as well, can't remain silent. He must speak. And as he does, he talks about King Nebuchadnezzar having a great kingdom and King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom being taken away and uh, King Nebuchadnezzar being chopped down and, and then going to have to live in the field, to live as a beast, to share in the, the beasts of the field for a period of seven uh, periods, seven times, seven periods. We don't exactly know what that is. Most people would say it's seven years. It could just be the fullness of time. I, I would probably think it's more seven years. And Daniel says, you're going to be turned into a beast, a wild animal. We're going to look at this in depth next week, but just by way of uh, introduction to this topic. Most people, when they read this, they go, well, this can't be real. When they read what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll look at next week, they, re they read it and they think, well, this is kind of fantasy. This isn't true. It's very interesting. There was an article written back in 1988 for psychological medicine entitled Lycanthropy, which is the condition that Nebuchadnezzar is going to go through. And it's called Lycanthropy Alive and Well in the 20th Century. And the article reported that although the condition where a human thinks that they are an animal and they get turned into beast-like uh, nature, though it's unusual in our day, it still does occur. In fact, uh, the man who wrote it is named Dr. Keck. Uh, he recorded in his study that he observed people, this is back in 1988, uh, who believed that they were wolves, gerbils. That's a tough one. I don't know why you'd think you're a gerbil. Dogs, birds, cats, rabbits, tigers, and even unidentified creatures. Sadly, there were people that he interacted with who concluded that they were, in fact, one of those animals, and thus responded as if they were. They took upon those characteristics to themselves. 
There's another interesting article a few years before that, 1946, a man by the name of R.K. Harrison observed a patient in one of the British mental institutions who exhibited almost exactly the same symptoms as King Nebuchadnezzar. The patient would wander around the grounds, eat grass like he were, as if he were a cow, and R.K. Harrison wrote, the only physical abnormality noted consisted of a lengthening of his hair and a coarse, thickened condition of his fingernails. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is going to go through. He's literally going to go crazy. He's going to go insane. His eyes are fixated on himself, and God's going to take his eyes and fix them on the beasts of the field because he is so beastly in his own heart. And he's going to go through it for seven years. All of this prolonged humiliation, as one commentator says, will teach Nebuchadnezzar to respect God's sovereignty over the affairs of men and to realize that he, like all earthly rulers, held authority only by permission of the Almighty in heaven above. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that the one true God whom Daniel served was the one he himself was answerable to. He had to learn that he was only a frail, temporary instrument in the hands of Yahweh, to whom he owed all glory and praise for all of his power. That's what Daniel has to share with the king. And he doesn't shrink back from sharing it. He front loads it with compassion and mercy and grace, and then he speaks with boldness, with clarity and compassion. And in essence... That message is the message that you and I get to share. We all have the exact same essence of a message. We know that God has spoken. He's spoken clearly. And he's told us that we, in our sin, we are absolutely insane. We've absolutely gone our own way. We've defied God. We've committed sin. We've offended a holy God. And God in his justice says, sin deserves punishment. You break the law, you have to pay the penalty. You have to pay the fine. So if you break the laws of an infinite God, then your penalty will be infinite as well. And so as we share the message of the gospel, we too, like Daniel, are telling the people around us, there is a day of judgment coming. There is a day when you will give an account for your sins, and if you do not repent, that day will come and you will be destroyed. We, we must share this message. We must respectfully speak the word of God, but we must do it understanding uh, with compassion and grace in our heart toward our enemies, towards those who would be against us and against our Savior. So as we share this, as we share this message, what must we do as we get to the end of that message? You have sinned, your sin offends a holy God, and there's a punishment that's going to come upon you. Judgment is imminent. It's here. It's coming. So what? What do we do? That leads to our fourth and final lesson from Daniel. He had the same question posed of him in verse 27. We have the interpretation of the dream. We know it's coming. We know it's going to happen. So what? King Nebuchadnezzar, what should you do now? Verse 27. Therefore, O king, may my advice seem good to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. 
Lesson number four is that we must reasonably plead for repentance to take place. We must reasonably plead. Based off of the truth of God's word, we have a reasonable argument to give to our friends, to give to our coworkers, to give to our family, to give to our neighbors, to say, you know the reality of God's word. I've spoken God's truth with compassion, and now you must respond. After all, his, uh, after all God has said, this is our reasonable response. And it's fascinating because Daniel ends a prophecy of coming judgment with hope. He doesn't end it by saying, judgment's coming, tough to be you, Nebuchadnezzar. He ends with hope. Judgment might be canceled altogether if you would repent. Maybe it's not going to be canceled, maybe it's going to be postponed, but either way, King Nebuchadnezzar, may my advice be pleasing to you, please repent. What courage from Daniel. He could easily have said, here's the interpretation, have a nice day, and left. But he stays and he says, can I give you some counsel? Can I give you some advice? Can I plead with you before I leave? Knowing that this plea, this call to repent could mean his very head. His candor might have cost him his life. Maybe it would have cost him his high office. There's a lot of possibilities of what he could lose by saying this, but he says it nonetheless. He says you must repent in two specific ways. Number one, you must break away from your sins by doing righteousness. He doesn't tell us what those sins are. I'm sure one of them is pride because of what we're going to see in the next section. Stop being so prideful. Stop being so self-sufficient. Stop being so self-reliant. And then secondly, he says break away from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar treated the poor harshly. Maybe this is a reference to the way that he treated slaves that were under him that were building all of his magnificent palaces and temples. He indulged in an extravagant lifestyle. So maybe this is just the sheer fact that Nebuchadnezzar had so much, so much means to be able to provide for the poor, and yet he hoarded it for himself. Maybe he was treating others cruelly, maybe not. Maybe he just did what people do to this day, practicing an indulgent lifestyle and simply ignoring the misfortune of others. He owned 53 temples and he created three magnificent palaces. One of those palaces, probably actually where this conversation is taking place, was the palace where the famed hanging gardens of Babylon were, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And somehow in all of this, Nebuchadnezzar had become so greedy, so prideful, so egotistical that he's not giving any care for those less fortunate. Listen to the words of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Those who are destitute, plead for them. Care for them. You know James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I wonder how many, just even in this room, God would say to you, you need to break away from your iniquities by caring for the poor. You are living a lavish lifestyle that you need to give to others. I know that we have, we talked about this at our business meeting on Wednesday, we have one of the most generous churches that I've, I've ever been a part of. But I just wonder if God would say to you this morning through this text, 
Consider the poor. Consider doing justice to those around you that you know are in need. For the one who knows what he ought to do and does it not, to him it is sin. Break away, Daniel says. Break away from your sins. This is a beautiful picture of repentance. Stop doing it. Turn. Break away and turn and do something else. Rip away from it. Similar to Matthew 5, Jesus' language, right? Tear out your eye if it causes you to stumble and throw it away from you. Get radical in your repentance. This is all reasonably presented to the king based on God's word because judgment is coming. And so Daniel says, knowing judgment is imminent, turn now. Turn now. Nothing said about Nebuchadnezzar's response. And the story ends there. We're going to have a one-year delay, and it's going to move into the next section that we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. But that one-year delay makes me think that there was probably some form of a change in Nebuchadnezzar, because the things that are taking place in the next section that were prophesied in what we're looking at this morning, they don't take place until after one year passes by. And so maybe there was an initial effort to follow Daniel's recommendation. You never know as you share the word of God with grace, compassion, kindness, as you speak the truth of God and you offer a reasonable response to that, which is repentance. You never know how somebody's going to respond. But that's not up to us. Our job is to be faithful in compassionately, clearly, compellingly sharing the message of Jesus and leaving the results to him. Daniel tells the king that there's a way out, a way back. Namely, to understand and accept that great as he is, there is a greater king than him. And it is God. It is Yahweh. Just taking these two Sundays, this Sunday and last Sunday, putting them together, juxtapose Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Last week we saw Nebuchadnezzar and we learned three lessons from Nebuchadnezzar. We learn, just like him, uh, we quickly forget the wonderful works and words of God. We quickly forget. That's why God had to give him another dream, to remind him again, you're not great, I am. Your greatness has come from me, and you and your pride have exalted yourself to a godlike state. Number two, we're terrified to lose what we love. That's why he was alarmed. He was alarmed because what he loved the most, he knew was going to be ripped out of his hands. Number three, we, just like Nebuchadnezzar, want to be sovereign over our own lives. We want to be king. We don't want someone to be king over us. And we talked about how to flip that in repentance, to admit that we are dependent upon our king. We aren't king. He is king. And we cling to Christ as our treasure. And we work in building his kingdom and not building our own kingdom. And here in the section that we're looking at this morning, we see Daniel seeing in that moment of fear how to respond You see, four amazing lessons from our brother Daniel. We've learned that life is filled with moments of fear. He experienced fear just like Nebuchadnezzar. But he responds differently. He responded first with compassion toward the king. Secondly, he responded by speaking the truth of God's word, not holding back, not pulling any punches. And then finally, he responds by giving a reasonable response. You must now repent. Do this now. Really, the call to repentance is a call to join in building God's kingdom and stopping building your own. No more am I going to fight to build my own kingdom. That's what he's saying to the king. King, you are working to build your kingdom, to make your name famous, to to, uh, make yourself great. 
Stop doing that and make God look great. You don't make God great. He is great. But you show forth that greatness to everyone around you. It's very interesting. Jesus uses this passage. Turn over to Mark chapter 4. Jesus quotes this text in Mark 4. He's speaking of the parables. He's sharing a parable. You know the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus says, Mark chapter 4, verse 30, Jesus was saying, how shall we compare the kingdom of God? So this is the kingdom of God, not your kingdom that you're making, not my kingdom that I'm making. This is God's kingdom. By what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed. It's tiny, it's minuscule, it's small. And when it's sown upon the soil, though it's the smallest of all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it's sown, it grows up. And it becomes largest of all the garden plants and forms large branches. And then here's the quotation from Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 4. So that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. So Jesus is saying what Nebuchadnezzar dreamt about, about this great king and this great kingdom that has uh, the birds nesting under the shade of the tree That's going to be ultimately the kingdom of God that can never be removed, that can never be destroyed. So you have a choice this morning. Either build for your fame and your kingdom and your renown or build for the renown of Christ our king. Those are our options. And just like Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, you have a choice, what will you choose? You and I have a choice this morning. What will we choose? Will we respond to the call of Christ to build the kingdom that he himself is building and we're just jumping into the program that God's already doing? Or will we say, you know what, I still enjoy my sin. I still like what I have. I still want my autonomy. One commentator says it this way regarding Daniel. We must be willing to share the bad news with people that they're out of sorts with God. Even as our hearts break for them, we must say it. We must be willing to tell others that God is not pleased with their pride. The human tendency that they have to push God aside and to think that we are the measure of all things. We must be willing to say why God works against us so that we might one day know that he rules over us and not we ourselves. Finally, we must be ready to call for repentance and offer hope. Daniel did all of that. And then the text stops. We're not told what the king said on that day. In fact, the verses that follow takes the reader into the future to at least one year later and the seven periods of time beyond. Clearly, God didn't feel any need for us to know how this private witness was received. He simply wanted us to see that it was given. Daniel didn't shirk from speaking God's word into the life of the most powerful man in the world. And in doing so, he has provided us with an example of the backbone needed to be faithful when our opportunity comes. And come it will. Because God is in the business of revealing himself to prominent, powerful people. Amen and amen. But as we come to the end of this sermon, as we come to the end of this section, and we see these four lessons learned from our elder brother Daniel, we need to remember that he, if he were here today... He would say, learn those lessons, whatever good you see in me that God graciously enabled me to live out, do those things, but I'm not the hero. Daniel, we can learn some lessons from Daniel, but Daniel isn't the hero. Daniel is still very much human as he goes through this experience and this encounter. He's not the Savior, he needs the Savior. 
But think about Jesus. Jesus, though living in moments of the most fearful experiences that you and I could possibly comprehend, what does he do? He turns his face towards Jerusalem. He rides down to Jerusalem and he says, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. Jesus has perfect compassion for his enemies, saying at the very moment that he's being crucified, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is the word of God who made his tabernacle among us. He dwelt among us so that we could behold his glory and hear him speak the very words of God. And Jesus has invited us this morning. He's called us this morning and he's commanded us this morning to take up our cross and to follow him. Daniel would say this morning, learn whatever lessons you can from any successes I had by the grace of God and all the failures because of my own sinfulness. But I'm not the hero. Christ is. Look to him. And as you live life and you find yourself in those moments of fear and you ask God, give me compassion for my enemies, help me to speak the word of God clearly and help me to call for repentance. As you do so, do so every single time saying, it's not my ability. It's Christ working through me. And may they see Jesus as they interact with me. Father, we thank you so much for your word that gives us such a rich picture, such a rich example from Daniel who, Father, I can't wait to meet him, to talk through this experience. But as we said, if he were here today, he would say, that's great, learn from it, praise the Lord, all glory be to God. But I needed a savior. And so we want to finish by looking at the hero of Daniel. And it's not Daniel. The hero of this book is Jesus, the Messiah. And we thank you that every fearful moment that he interacted with, that he dealt with, that he met, he would do so trusting you, entrusting himself to you. May we do that as well. Give us as a church fresh courage. I think of the words of that hymn that William Cooper wrote, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. God, give us fresh courage this morning. Give us compassion for our enemies the way that Christ had compassion on his. The way that he had compassion on me while I was yet his enemy, he died for me. Give us clarity and boldness to speak the word of God with compassion and with grace and with love. Living out Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 Speak the truth in love. And Father, enable us to finish that message with the hope that's offered in the gospel. Turn now, turn to Christ now. Repent and follow him. What a gracious invitation. What a joyful, gracious gift. And may we do all of that as we present the gospel to our friends around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, may we do all of that knowing that it is not I, but Christ through me. I want to make much of him. May he increase and may I decrease. May we respond even as we sing with a prayer and a desire to let that be true of us today. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.